0: You're listening to an airwave media podcast.
1: Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr.
0: Andrea Love.
1: And today's episode is kind of fun for us. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We're going to talk about the history of epidemiology. And something that I thought was really cool as we were prepping for this episode, Andrea, is that. You know, your background is in microbiology and immunology. Mine is in public health, population health, um and you know, epidemiology falls under that umbrella. But we, we both still studied this and have significant things to contribute to this conversation. I think it's cool that there's overlap, you know. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we before we dig into this conversation, and we're definitely going to nerd out today,
0: so raise <laughs> yourselves. Um, Andrea, did you want to do a yeah. plug
1: for the Data Heroes Award?
0: <laughs> so if you guys didn't catch it on last week's episode, we are finalists for the Data Heroes Awards. Um, this is a, a, a huge honor. Uh, I don't even still have words, but basically we've been nominated and we are a finalist out of a group of five. Um, for for groups or individuals um, that have provided data access and transparency during the COVID-19 pandemic. So public voting is a component of who ends up winning, um, so if you do want to support us, you can vote for us uh on the Data Hero Awards page. It is dataheroawards.org forward slash vote. We are in the provocateurs cohort. So you have to scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page. Um, and then pick um uh, Jess and I as the the team from unbiased science if you want to support us.
1: Please do. We really appreciate your support. Um, Another thing that I wanted to mention is um, you, I I hope you guys know this, but we have a website, unbiassipod.com, and on that website, um, we post lots of information. There are show notes for all the episodes. Um, You can see all of our um, social media posts, but we also have a place for you to donate if you're so inclined, um, because as you probably know, we do this. This is entirely volunteer. We're doing this on top of our full-time gigs. Uh, And we also have a merch store, which is just really exciting for us. Um, And that's such a great way for you guys to support us while also, you know, telling the world that you support science. And so we, we, we actually we're doing a limited release of these two t-shirts and they're so cool um our our favorite science adages which you've heard us say i don't know thousands of times at this point point. <laughs> one is correlation doesn't equal causation and the other is the dose makes the poison so check those out they're on our merch store um, the shirts are only available in limited quantities through sunday march 28th So go check those out sooner rather than later. So, okay, let's dig into today's episode. We're going to talk about the history of epidemiology. And Andrea, right before we recorded today, you you made a really interesting point um, about how there's this misconception that epidemiology is somehow synonymous with the study of infectious disease. Can you elaborate
0: on that a little bit? Um, yeah, so epidemiology, you know, we're living in the COVID-19 pandemic, right? And and people, the general public, the media have turned to epidemiologists as being a source of expertise, which is totally appropriate. But I think because people are only hearing about epidemiologists now in the course of an infectious disease pandemic, they don't truly realize what epidemiology is. So epidemiology is actually the study and analysis of the distribution, so that's who, when, and where, the patterns, and the determinants of health and disease conditions in specific populations. It is not just about infectious diseases, although, of course, you know, it it plays a critical role in investigating outbreaks of infectious diseases. But I think it's right. important. No, go. I'm sorry. No, go on. I was gonna say it's important to keep in mind that you know there are other disease conditions, there are other health conditions that humans, in particular, um, experience that are beyond just infectious diseases.
1: Exactly. So epidemiology falls under this very broad public health umbrella. And being in public health, I could tell you that I have so many colleagues who, yes, you know, they they do study infectious disease, but I actually. The most that I know who are in epidemiology, um, they actually focus on chronic illness. And we're going to talk about how this has evolved over time. Um, if, if I I can't wait to do an episode in the future on some of the, um, the topics that I'm really passionate about as a public health scientist. But um, just as an example, my focus has been on chronic disease prevention, specifically uh, related to uh, tobacco use, so smoking-related chronic illnesses. So, um, Andrea, that is such an important point to make that epidemiology is not specific to infectious disease. Yep. So just a little, I don't know, uh, linguistic lesson?
0: Mm, lesson, mm That's not the
1: right word. But (laughs) the word epidemiology comes from the Greek words epi, meaning on or upon, demos, meaning people, and I don't know, do you pronounce this logos? Logos, yeah. Logos, okay, meaning the study of. So, in other words, put those things together. The word epidemiology has its roots in the study of what befalls a population, um, or what is upon the people. Yep. So, it's you know, Andrea, as you said, the the common definition of epidemiology is that it's the 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 study of the distribution and determinants of disease frequency in human populations, and the application of this study to control health problems. Right. So when people ask me, it's so funny, before COVID-19, <laughs> when I told people I was in public health or, you know, mentioned epidemiology, they looked at me like I had 10 heads. <laughs> you know, no one knew what I was talking about. And the way that I always like to to try to explain it is that, you know, clinicians are diagnosing and treating at the at the individual level. And we in public health do this at the population level. So it's kind of like diagnosis at the population level. I think
0: that's a great way of phrasing it because, of course, the same sort of things that you would look at within a person, history, trends, all those sorts of things are true, but you're looking at it with regard to many, many people at once. Exactly. So... We know that there are many
1: determinants or causes of disease, right? Factors capable of bringing about a change in health. And these can be physical, so we could talk about you know, chemicals, biological factors, genetics. They could be psychosocial, for example, stress, um, things related to our social networks or social supports or lack thereof. Um, determinants of disease can be at the individual level or the societal level. And of course, we now know that these factors interact with each other. They, they coexist and they interact. So we're gonna get into the history of this and, and how, this, um, how epidemiology has evolved over time. Do
0: you wanna tell us when it seems to have First, come about, India? Sure, yeah, I can kind of set the stage. Um, the term epidemiology seems to have first been used in publication in 1802 by a Spanish physician Vialba, um, and it was used, of course, in the context to describe the study of epidemics. So, epidemics, of course, are outbreaks or emergence of disease. Now historically, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of the how epidemiology as a field has evolved. But um, the term epidemiology is applied to cover description and causation of not just epidemics, not just infectious disease outbreaks, but also disease in general. And and even aside from diseases, also health-related conditions, things like depression, obesity, high blood pressure. So epidemiology very broadly, as Jess has already summarized, is based on these patterns of disease or health conditions now even before that term was used in 1802, the process of epidemiology was was evolving. So Hippocrates was somewhat attributed to being the first researcher um to apply very rudimentary epidemiology. So he had his logic of disease and so Hippocrates attempted to explain disease occurrences from a rational rather than a struck a supernatural viewpoint, and so he wrote uh, several essays, but one in particular was titled "On Airs, Waters, and Places." And in this writing, Hippocrates suggested that environmental and host factors, such as behaviors, might actually influence or affect the development of diseases. So, you know, if we want to think of it very broadly and very rudimentarily, epidemiology has been around for over twenty five hundred years. And and you know we didn't hear a ton about it until you know the 1600s. So during the Ming Dynasty, which which you know took place from the 1300s to the 1600s, um, there were several Chinese researchers that developed the idea that some diseases were caused by transmissible agents, and of course. We didn't have any knowledge of what those agents were at the time. We didn't have microscopy. We didn't have germ theory. We're going to talk about that. But um, they proposed a theory or a phenomenon called Chi, which is pestilential factors. and And this was during the observation of epidemics that were raging in China between 1641 and 1644. And so this observation became a treatise, a writing. Uh, It's called the Treatise on Pestilence, the Treatise of Epidemic Diseases. And this was actually one of the main works that brought forward this concept of transmissible disease. Now, in 1662, there was a, a, a British man named John Grant, and he was actually considered the founder of demography. So demographics, which are the statistical study of populations, um, obviously go very closely hand in hand with epidemiology. And and Grant was actually really interesting because he was a haberdasher uh, by profession. So he was not a scientist by training, but he... What's a haberdasher? Um, someone that makes clothing like um, linen or um, textiles and things like that yeah Um, I I find it so interesting that all these people like in European history they like like they worked as like a shoemaker but they actually did all this other stuff in like all these other different fields but anyway so so there was a, a weekly kind of mortality report that was put out um in in England and As he was reviewing it, he was noticing all these disparities in mortality data, and he was noticing that there was disparities based on gender, so male versus female, um, based on age, based on where a person lived, whether they were urban or rural. He also noticed disparities in seasonality. Um, And so, so he... By noticing all of these disparities in death rates, he created his own writings that we're going to link to on the website. But basically, he noted that things, um, you know, death rates were were classified based on his classifications according to causes of death. Um, some of those were things like overpopulation. So he was actually one of the first people to observe that overpopulation can lead to differential health outcomes. He also observed that the urban death rate was higher than rural death rates. Uh, He found that there was higher mortality rate in males versus females. And he was credited with developing the life table. So the life table is um, called a mortality table or actuarial table. And basically it's a table that defines the probability of a person or, or the probability of that a person of that age in the table will die before their next birthday. So it's a probability of death table, basically. Um, Super fun. And- yeah. Very, very optimistic. But, um, but it was the first time that you could actually classify and, and predict or use probability to determine a population's longevity or the relative expectancy of that population. So using these tools, he was sometimes considered the first epidemiologist because he wrote all this up. He developed a system in actually to extrapolate mortality rates based on all these observations
1: Foods
0: Market. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: So let's, let's talk about the different eras of epidemiology. So we typically define an era of epidemiology by the theory of disease causation at the time. So just high-level summary, there's the sanitary era, and we're going to talk more about each of these, but there's the sanitary era, which is really the early 19th century. Then there was the infectious disease era in the mid-1800s, mid to late 1800s risk factor era, excuse me, which was really the mid-1900s. And then now we find ourselves into what some people call the eco-epidemiology era. And we're, we'll we'll talk more about these um, in just a second. So let's start off with the sanitary era in the 19th century. So at this time, disease was thought to be caused by something called miasma. People thought that there was poisoning by foul emanations from the soil, water, and air, which were found more often where poor people lived. And it was associated with poverty. So people literally thought that it was this, you know, stinky air that was making them sick. And at the time, miasma was thought to cause all health problems. So causation was nonspecific. There was this one cause for multiple diseases, so miasma could be reduced and thus disease prevented by improved sanitation. So ways to to improve sanitation that would reduce this the smell of the air, reduce this miasma. So at this time, they were addressing poverty and the consequences of poverty. So what did they do? They closed drains um, and created sewage systems. They collected garbage. There were public baths and improved housing. Uh, So we had we had different interventions such as the public health act of 1848 which was created to improve sanitation of cities and towns in england uh there were the poor laws of 1834 that required the poor to enter a workhouse rather than receive charity
0: and i and i find it really interesting because you know we all know now that the miasma theory is is not accurate but You know, a lot of these hygiene measures obviously reduce disease, not because you're controlling this foul air, but because you're being sanitary. And we actually saw this, you know, during the Black Plague, right? So we know now that the Black Plague is caused by a bacterium called Yersinia pestis that is transmitted or spread by fleas that like to live on rats and other rodents. And so people in poverty who are living amongst rodents, you know, who also happened to be in poor hygiene areas, didn't have access to clean water. You know, they were the ones that were developing, you know, bubonic plague more frequently than affluent people who weren't living amongst rodents. And so a lot of these measures to to clean up, you know, the streets and things like that helped eliminate it, not because of the air, but because, you know, you're not living amongst rats and fleas and and ultimately the bacteria.
1: Right. So they got the cause wrong, but the actions that they took actually did help to reduce disease right. right yep yep <laughs> okay so let's move on to the infectious disease era so in 1840 jacob Henle, and by the way i've been mispronouncing his name for a very long time <laughs> saying jacob henley just butchering it um he was a professor of anatomy and physiology and he published a page a paper in which he hypothesized that infection with minute organisms was a major cause of disease So he argued that contagious diseases are caused by living beings, but he doubted that it was possible to identify these parasites. Um, Andrea, I know you wanted to talk a bit about
0: John Snow. I do. I really do. Um, So John Snow, who I would say most people consider the father of modern epidemiology, became famous really during the 1854 Broad Street cholera outbreak. And... I'm sure, Jess, you are very well-versed in all of this, but but he's one of these case, cases that we really have to discuss when we talk about the history of epidemiology. So, you know, John Snow, 1854, this was kind of the precipice of like the convergence of the miasma theory and what we're calling the infectious disease era, which is the emergence of the germ theory of disease. And so, John Snow was actually an anesthesiologist, but he was investigating this, these sudden outbreaks of cholera um, in London. And he was one of these major challengers to the miasma theory and actually a proponent of germ theory. And, and so what ended up happening was he noticed that we these cholera outbreaks were happening around London, and he was trying to investigate it and figure out what was actually causing this. Because prior to this, again, cholera was one of these diseases that was thought to be caused by miasma. And and so what he actually first did was he created this, this map called a spot map, and, and we're going to post his actual spot map on the website, but what it is is it's it's a individual dots for each person that, you know, had cholera in a particular location. So he determined all the different afflicted persons, um, where they lived and worked, and he marked each home on the map. He believed that water was a potential source of infection for cholera. And at this point, you know, we didn't know what what the cause of cholera was, but he was looking at the location of water pumps on his spot map and then looking for the distribution of households with cholera and their relationship between the locations of the different pumps. So there was three main pumps that were on there, the Broad Street pump and then two other pumps. And when he was looking at this particular area on the map called the Golden Square, they often told him that they avoided the two other pumps, one because it was visibly contaminated and the other one was inconveniently located so that the vast majority of them were in fact going to the Broad Street pump Um, and so based on this survey of all these people that had developed cholera he was deducing that this Broad Street pump for water sourcing was the most likely source of infection he wanted to try and do some additional confirmatory research on this and so he was looking at where they were sourcing their water from so Back then in London, there were two different water companies, the Lambeth Company and the Southwark and Vauxhall Company. And both of these companies were getting their water from the Thames. And originally, both were getting water from the Thames that was downstream of London and therefore susceptible to all sorts of sewage contamination because, of course, We didn't have a lot of water treatment back then. But what ended up happening was the Lambeth Company actually moved its water intake site upstream from London in 1852. So two years prior to this cholera outbreak. And so when he actually looked at where people were sourcing or where people were actually getting their water from, which water company, and looked at death rates from cholera... The vast majority of people that were contracting cholera and dying it from cholera were the ones that were still sourcing their water from the Southwark and Vauxhall company, which was the water company that was sourcing water from downstream from London in the Thames. And so this was further indication that in fact it was being contaminated by the water and it was from downstream contamination from sewage from London and then of course he actually further investigated this by looking at areas of London that were served by both water companies but only looking at the different households that got from one or the other and was able to confirm that it seemed like yes this this Broad Street pump water source by the Southwark and Vauxhall company was in fact the source of the cholera outbreak. And so using this very strategic approach, he was able to identify the source of the infection. And of course, as we know, they cut off the water supply at that pump and we're able to basically halt that outbreak.
1: I get goosebumps every single time <laughs> I hear this. I've learned about this over and over again. It's just the coolest story. And I think that when folks go to our show notes and they actually look at the map, it I think it just drives home how, how cool. It's this
0: it's I is. mean, it's incredible. You think about this is done in, in you know, the mid eighteen fifties. And and I think it's really important to note, you know, we know now that cholera is transmitted by a bacterium called Vibrio cholerae. Um, and we know primarily because of John Snow's work that it is transmitted via contaminated water and food and and it's a very virulent disease it can cause uh, we call it rice water stool rice water diarrhea and, and it and it can be fatal if you don't get rehydrated very quickly and and it's interesting to me though because the the microscope that was developed by Leeuwenhoek that was able to actually see bacteria was not even developed until almost 21 years later oh, well that's I mean, this is so groundbreaking right. think about what was going on at the time time right I mean he was able to determine all this without even actually being able to see the bacteria itself just knowing that you know the water is the the source of this illness and by removing that source you can stop the illness just incredible
1: Well, another fella who we should discuss um, is Louis Pasteur, who um, in 1865, you know, if we're talking about infectious disease epidemiology, uh, he demonstrated that living organisms were the agents in an epidemic afflicting silkworms. And he just—I mean, you. I'm sure you you studied him quite a bit, Andrea, because he's considered as the progenitor of modern immunology, mm-hmm. uh, because of his studies in the late 19th century that popularized the germ theory of disease, right? And, and that introduced the hope that all infectious diseases could be prevented by prophylactic vaccination um, as well as also treated by therapeutic vaccination if applied soon enough after infection and and really you know he was doing all this you know we're, we're saying at, at the dawn of the appreciation of the microbial world, right. right? The people didn't know what the immune system was. And as you said, they didn't even have microscopes. <laughs> like, this is just totally, totally groundbreaking. So, um, okay, have to mention Louis. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, we also have to mention uh, Robert Koch. Mm-hmm. Um, he was Henley's student. So, in 1882, he established uh, mycobacterium as the cause of tuberculosis. So he was a German physician and one of the founders of bacteriology, excuse me. He discovered the anthrax disease cycle. um, And as I just said, you know, a few years later, um, so anthrax, he discovered the anthrax disease in 1876. And then it was a few years later in 1882 that he discovered That mycobacterium was the cause of tuberculosis and cholera in 1883. So he was a busy guy. Um, He actually won uh, the Nobel Prize for physiology.
0: Yeah, physiology. Okay, physiology. medicine in
1: 1905 um, because of his discoveries in regard to tuberculosis.
0: Yeah, I mean these guys were obviously you know founders, visionaries. You know they really provided a lot of the evidence for germ theory. You know, they did a lot of things where they demonstrated the fact that a particular back pathogen was a causal agent of disease, and you had to have the presence of that pathogen in order to develop that disease. And, and that's really, you know, Koch's postulates of germ theory is really where right. where that all, you know, evolved into. So obviously very important in the context of epidemiology, but also very important in microbiology and immunology. Right. I think it's so cool, Andrea, here. Like, again, it's the intersection of our feet. Absolutely. It's, it's
1: interesting. So in this infectious disease era, the cause of the disease, the focus was on the cellular level, right? Cells infected with some sort of microorganism. So the public health action was to control or kill germs, and there really wasn't a focus on these societal or social problems mm-hmm. like poverty, for example. Um, it was just you know this need for antibiotics or drugs to kill germs when they infect. And,
0: and I think it's important to mention here, Jess, that like you know. Life expectancy was lower back then. So, a lot of the issues that we encounter now with modern epidemiology, things that are associated with chronic illnesses or disease of the age, aging populations, and things like that, you know, certainly they're happening, right? But because we don't have as much modern medicine back then, you know, the things that are higher priority are, of course, infectious pathogens that, you know, you can tackle with a vaccine, with antibiotics, you know, with these very specific treatment modalities that can really eradicate an entire disease state.
1: That is such an important point, And I think it's a perfect segue into this next era. Um, so in the late 19th uh, and early 20th centuries, Epidemiology extended to diseases beyond acute infectious disease. So this, again, this speaks to your point earlier, Andrea, that epidemiology is not specific to infectious disease. So in this next era, the focus was on chronic illnesses, right. lung cancer and, and causes of them smoking, um, you know, and, and outcomes such as cardiovascular disease. Uh, obesity.
0: And this is, this is kind of what we consider to be the risk factor era. Is that right, Jess? Exactly. Exactly.
1: So this is all about looking for or finding statistical associations between exposures and diseases. And at this time, we're really talking about chronic diseases so for example they knew and we'll talk about this in a second that smoking was a risk factor for lung disease lung cancer lung disease different lung diseases But they didn't really understand the specific mechanism through which the exposure caused the disease. So it was actually often called black box epidemiology, right? So you knew the cause, you knew the outcome, but you didn't really understand what was going Mm -hmm. on in between. You didn't really understand the mechanism.
0: And of course, you know, from a cell biology level, we filled in a lot of those holes over the years. But, you know, being able to establish a link, a direct link, even without the mechanism is critically important to helping control the progression of these chronic diseases absolutely and and so the focus at this time was
1: implementing interventions that reduce the the amount of exposure that a person has. So by doing so, you can prevent the disease even though you don't fully understand the the causal mechanism. So let's just talk about a few key players during this era. So there was Sir Austin Bradford Hill. He was an English epidemiologist and statistician. He pioneered the randomized controlled trial, the RCT. Um, He actually introduced randomization where therapies beginning with streptomycin and could be evaluated in large scale clinical trials. So he, uh, together with Richard Dahl, they actually conducted the first case control study, which showed that lung cancer was likely caused by cigarette smoking. Um, More specifically, and we'll actually link to their study, uh, they demonstrated that the risk of lung cancer was related to the number of cigarettes smoked per day. So the risk was 25 times higher in those who smoked more than 25 cigarettes a day as compared to non-smokers. So Hill set forth a list of criteria. We still talk about them today, and they can be used to help assess whether an association is likely to be causal or not. I have to caveat here. Um, He explicitly stated that cause effect decisions. Should not and cannot be based on a set of rules, right? It's, it's not qu- quite that simple. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, you can, they can help us make decisions on whether an association is likely causal. Right. But he, he, he advised epidemiologists to avoid overemphasizing statistical significance testing, given the observation that systematic error is often greater than, than random error. So just had to had to point that out, so um, I'll just mention what the causal criteria are: strength of association, consistency, specificity, time sequence or temporality, biological gradient, plausibility, coherence, experiment, and analogy and I mean, none of these are actually necessary characteristics of a co- of a cause, except for one, which is temporal order, right? We, we need to, we, the exposure has to precede the right. outcome for it to be causal, right. right? But if we have evidence to support these different criteria, then it strengthens our confidence in attributing causality to the association.
0: Right, Jess, and I think this makes a good distinction about our correlation does not equal causation, um, little adage, because of course, you know, these criteria can help you to tease out whether it's just correlation or it is truly causation, but you can't simply just check off on the list. You have to actually dig into the disease state you're looking at or the, the health outcome that you're looking at and actually investigate it to determine if, you know, it fulfills these criteria, you know, if it's complete, I mean, of course, you know, something like biological plausibility, that's going to eliminate something from being a, a causally linked condition um, outright. But, right. you know, it's not simply just checking off the list. You also have to do further investigation. Exactly. And and
1: one that I know is, is often still used today, I mean, people refer to all of these, um, but strength of association. So for example, if you have a risk ratio or, or an odds ratio, that's, you know ten point zero as opposed to you know, 1.4, it's showing a, a stronger association, right? The strength of association is, is greater. And so that helps us, that helps with it, make the case that something's causal. But as you just said, it's not as simple as, as checking a box, right? Um, so it's a little bit more complicated than that. So all of these criteria are useful um, when trying to, 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 to say that something is causal, um, but with the exception of temporality or time sequence, they're not necessary. So now we find ourselves in what some people call this era of eco-epidemiology. And we now have this understanding of multi-causality. So lung cancer, for example, um, has multiple causes. Sure, we know, of course, that that, that smoking is a major factor. But so is air pollution Mm -hmm. or genetics or exposure to asbestos, for example. And these different exposures can also interact with each other. So, epidemiology has really evolved, right, from this infectious disease era to this chronic multifactorial disease investigation. We know that there's not just one cause, there are multiple causes, individual level, societal level, and all these things work together, they interact,
0: and that's what leads to disease. And I think, Jess, you make such a good point there because it's certainly multifactorial within an individual, and it's also multifactorial within a population. And as you mentioned already, you know, we have socioeconomic factors, we have healthcare access factors, we have geographical factors. I mean, even when we look, you know, from country to country, countries that have uh, universal healthcare versus those that don't, or regions that have, you know, proximity to uh, medical institutions versus ones that don't. I mean, all of those things are going to affect the outcome of a disease state. Very
1: well said. I hope that people now have a clearer sense. You know, I feel like COVID has sort of given epidemiologists a new platform, um, but I think it's really important to make this distinction that epidemiologists aren't, they don't simply study infectious disease. It's, it's a lot more than that. You know, it's, As we've said, I feel like now we're, we're beating a dead horse. You know, It's not just infectious disease, it's also chronic disease and all these different factors and, and risk factors. That can lead to disease, and they interact with each other at various levels, and and all that
0: and, I, and I think it's also important that you know they're looking at this from a population level. So even within the context of infectious diseases, they're not necessarily going to be the experts that are teasing apart how a pathogen infects you and how it causes disease and how it actually you know leads to mortality within a single individual. They're looking at the trends the disease prevalence, the outcomes based on, say, mitigation measures and things like that. Well,
1: I, I hope that you all enjoyed this. Um, Andrea, I feel like we could talk about this for <laughs> forever. Forever and ever. This is so cool. But you want to take us home and tell
0: folks what we're going to chat about next? Yeah. Um, so thank you guys for tuning in today. We hope you we've given you kind of a summary of the evolution of epidemiology and how it's evolved from early observations with regard to infectious disease, and acute illnesses, to the evolution of incorporating chronic illnesses, and of course now to really appreciating the multifactorial components of disease when we're assessing population level um, spread and prevalence. So if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And as just mentioned, check out our website at www.unbiasedpsipod. If you want a correlation doesn't equal causation t-shirt, you only have one week to pick it up uh, and then they're being dragged from the website. Um, next week, we're going to do another little history lesson, and we're going to talk about the history of vaccines. Um, we will, of course, continue to provide updates on COVID-19 vaccine progress and pandemic updates on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science.
1: Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.
0: I am a scientist